Let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, and let's rejoice in the free salvation that is declared to us in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We may not be Israelites in the sense of those Israelites that Paul addressed this chapter about, but we're farther away from the truth than they were by our natural origin. And the Lord has sent that gospel to us. We're going to read in the 12th verse that there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. And thank you, Lord, for that. Let me read to you the first 13 verses of this chapter. Romans 10, verses 1 through 13. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every one that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart, Who shall ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down from above. Or, Who shall descend into the deep? That is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We have Paul's burden here given to us in his desire for his kinsmen, his fellow Israelites that were elect, that needed to be converted from their ignorance to the knowledge of the truth that Jesus Christ had brought forgiveness Himself and that they could be justified simply by believing in Him without any works of the law, which I read to you earlier from Acts chapter 13 in his first recorded sermon. But this is not just Paul's burden. This is Paul's opportunity. This is Paul's privilege to declare and preach such a wonderful message that salvation is obtained. Salvation has been completed by one who descended into the deep, into the lowest parts of this earth, and then ascended to sit at God's right hand, after having cried from the cross, it is finished. And that is a message that Paul got to declare to Israelites that didn't know it was finished, that thought they had to finish it, and knew that they finishing it was a hopeless dream. This is elect Israel, worshiping in ignorance that Paul wanted to see saved to the knowledge of the truth. Let's go to verse 5 and remind ourselves of the description of the law of Moses. Romans 10.5 For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, 
that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. The Old Testament was do and live. God never intended that anyone would live by it. And the fact is, no one ever did do it that in order to live by it. It was a schoolmaster, it was a tutor to drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And by us, I mean the church of God. For 1,500 years, the church was under the law of Moses without any hope in that system of religion, though that system of religion did make witness of the fact that a Savior was coming. But in the rituals of that religion, there was no hope. I want to show you where this comes from and show you that every everyone in the Bible, from Old Testament to New, understood that it was a system of do and live. We are under a system of grace that is live and do. He gives us the life to live out. He's worked in us, both to will and to, to do of His good pleasure. And so with fear and trembling, we want to work it out this morning, but with a whole lot of rejoicing as well. Look at Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus 18. By God's grace, I want to move quickly today. Leviticus 18.5. Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. This is Old Testament religion. Do and live. Keep all 718 of my commandments, and you can have everlasting life. Leviticus 18.5. Look at Nehemiah chapter 9. And see that it, this has been understood all the way through the thousands of years of the church since Mount Sinai. Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 29. Nehemiah is giving a history here of Israel. And so we jump into a middle of a sentence in verse 29. That God had testified against them that thou mightest bring them again unto thy law. Yet they dealt proudly and hearkened not unto thy commandments but sinned against thy judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them, and withdrew the shoulder, and hardened their neck, and would not hear. Notice in parentheses the same statement from Leviticus 18.5, and that is, do and live. That's Nehemiah. Look at Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20, and it's twice here in this chapter, in verses 11 and 13. Ezekiel chapter 20 verse 11. And I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. In verse 13. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They walked not in my statutes, and they despised my judgments, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. And my Sabbaths they greatly polluted. Then I said, I would pour out my fury upon them in the wilderness to consume them. Now look at Matthew chapter 19 where the Lord Jesus Christ picks up what was declared by Moses, confirmed by Nehemiah, and declared again by Ezekiel. Matthew chapter 19 verse 17. The rich young ruler has come to the Lord Jesus Christ and said in verse 16, What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Verse 17, And he said unto him, this is Jesus answering, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. That's all you've got to do, is keep the commandments. And then we can come over to Galatians chapter 3, 
and I hope you always keep your place at Romans 10, but in Galatians chapter 3, the apostle will confirm all this. Galatians 3.12, And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Do you see this thread all the way through the Bible that Old Testament religion was do and live? And so we have that in verse 5 of Romans 10 because Paul is reminding his audience, his reading, his reading audience in Rome and his audience for 2,000 years that the Israelites that had not come to a knowledge of the gospel were in this kind of a system of salvation. Do and live. Keep all the commandments and you can enter into life which was impossible. So we come to verse 6. But the righteousness which is of faith. Now this is the righteousness by which we can stand before God. If you could keep God's 718 commandments continually, perfectly, without any let up, you could stand before God and you'd have eternal life. But it was never designed for that, and it never accomplished that with anyone. Romans 10.6, But the righteousness which is of faith. This is a different righteousness. This is the righteousness of the new covenant. This is the righteousness of the gospel. This is the righteousness in which we just claim it by faith. This is the righteousness which our faith shows us to already have by being the evidence and the proof of it secured by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what does it say? The old one said, do this and live. What does the new one say? Someone has done it for us. Just believe it. It can't get any freer than that. Just believe it. And that believing it is not to get any part of it or to enhance it in heaven. It's just for the comfort of your own soul so that you won't waste your life trying to establish it some erroneous way. Verse 6, But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Now he's quoting from Deuteronomy 30. And yes, I'm going to take you back there because I don't want you to ever forget these words. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30 with our place held at Romans chapter 10, so that we can see where Paul gets these words, we can see Moses' original intent for the words, and then we'll see Paul enhance them for the sake of the gospel. I don't believe that Moses is purely prophesying of the gospel. I don't believe that Paul is purely quoting. You should look at him more closely. Paul is adapting an Old Testament statement that is perfect for his purpose here. By the Holy Ghost. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 11. For this commandment, and the commandment here is embodied in thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. All the commandments that God gave Israel is summed up in the commandment of the love of God. And this is also a collective noun for all the commandments. Because if you read before or you read after, you're going to read of commandments plural like in verse 16 and so forth. For this commandment, which I command thee this day, it is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that thou shouldest say, Who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that thou shouldest say, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us, that we may hear it And do it. But the word is very nigh unto thee, in thy mouth and in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. These four verses here in Deuteronomy 30 very clearly are 
describing the fact that God, had, through Moses, had made His law, His commandments, and the basis for obtaining His blessings in this world and the next very clear, perfectly clear. They had been brought down from heaven by God, from heaven, coming down on Mount Sinai, where Moses had gone up to meet with God. So much was the presence of God there that when Moses came down, his face was shining. And he had tablets written by the finger of God. It was in writing. It was declared. The mountain was shaking altogether. They didn't have to go across the sea to the sages of the east. They didn't have to go across the Mediterranean to the philosophers of Greece. They didn't have to look anywhere. It had been brought down and given to them. It was right before them. It is not hidden. It is not far off. You have heard it. It's in your mouth. You're talking about it. It's in your heart. You're purposing to keep it. You know full well what it is. Someone will come along and say, this has to be a prophecy of the New Testament because the law wasn't in their heart and in their mouth under the Old Testament. Oh, yes, it was. How many scriptures do you need? Because I don't have time for them today. Do you need Psalm 119 where it says that David would apply his whole heart to the law of God over and over and over again? It was in their heart. You say you need a couple. Okay. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 29. Deuteronomy 4.29 But if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find Him, if thou seek Him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Deuteronomy 4.29 That's under the Old Covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 6 Verse 4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. See? This is something you choose to put in your heart. And Moses had put it in their hearts. This was a new generation, not the generation that came out of Egypt. This was a new generation, their children, and it was in their hearts. And it was supposed to be in their hearts. And it was a choice to put it in their hearts. We're talking about elect Israel here. They could put it in their hearts. They could commit themselves to it. They could have a passion for it. And they were talking about it. They were supposed to put it on their doorposts. They were supposed to write it on their gates. It was supposed to be like frontlets between their eyes. It was supposed to be like a, like a sign bind, binded upon their hands. It was very close to them. It was right in front of them. There was no doubt about it. They knew its terms. And so Deuteronomy 30 is explaining to us in those words that the law of Moses and that covenant had been made very plain. They discussed it. They knew it. They saw it. It was in their hearts. They were resolved to keep it there in Deuteronomy 30 because Moses did leave a committed generation. And as long as Joshua lived and that generation of Joshua's age, they obeyed that covenant. Come back to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Now in verse 6, But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Moses said, don't ask who's going to go to heaven for us because it's already been brought down. You've already heard it. You can do it. No one needs to cross the sea for us because it's already been given to you. Now, Paul's going to take those words, and I understand Paul this way. He is simply taking Moses' words of how plain and obvious the old covenant was to restate that the new covenant of grace is just as plain and obvious. And the mediator is not Moses this time. The mediator is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's finished the work completely. And it's free. And it's preached everywhere by every apostle, starting with the Lord Jesus Christ. Is what we're going to get in these three verses, 6 through 8. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? 
This question is, who is going to make peace with God for me? This is not who's going to get to go to heaven. Who's in the book of life? That is not the question. The question adapted from Moses is, who is going to go and make peace with God for me? The Lord Jesus Christ has already done that. And so in parentheses, the Apostle Paul says, that is, this question that I have formed from Moses is somebody suggesting that justification and righteousness has not been perfected yet. But it has been, because that would bring Christ down from above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, having finished the work of justification for us. This question, who is going to go into heaven, who is going to mediate between us and God, who is going to please God, states, implies that Jesus Christ didn't finish His work. Therefore, it's an invalid question, and it doesn't ask such a thing. It doesn't think such a thing. It doesn't allow such a thing as an incomplete salvation. Next verse. Or, who shall descend into the deep? The righteousness of Moses' law is stated in one verse, one way. Do and live. The righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is conveyed and declared to us by the gospel, is stated three ways. Two negative, one positive. The two negatives are verses 6 and 7. The positive is verse 8. The second negative is the question, who shall descend into the deep? Who's going to suffer for us? Who's going to go down for us? Who's going to die for us? And if you ask that in any way, if you have a, a system of religion that in any way makes Christ's death insufficient, that you have to make it effectual by something you do, like the seven sacraments of Rome, or like the Arminian system, that yes, he died for all. Here's how they word it. Christ's death is sufficient for all men, but it's efficient only for the elect. Or, or it's efficient only for the believers. That isn't true. Jesus Christ didn't pay for the sins of all men. And so you're requiring something else to make his death efficient, as they call it. I say his death was quite efficient just the way he did it by himself. Because he said it is finished. And when you read Hebrews 9 and 10 about him ascending into heaven and offering his blood once for all for all sins and it was accepted by God, he satisfied the righteous demands of God's law. Who shall descend to the deep? That is, that what is intended by this question is undoing the death of Jesus Christ. Moses' law undid the death of Jesus Christ. Paul would declare in Galatians chapter 5, if you think that keeping the law justifies you at all, Christ is dead in vain. Anything plus grace ruins grace. Anything plus Christ ruins Christ. So you can't ask anything like this. Because Christ already descended into the deep into the parts of this earth, the lowest parts of this earth with His incarnation and humiliation and into the grave. And we bring Him up again from the dead and say that His death didn't accomplish what it was supposed to if we ask this question the way the Apostle is asking it here. Just as Moses' law was made so obviously plain and clear to Israel, the Gospel makes it the justification this plain to us. It is finished! It's done. It's settled. It's been paid for. Grace is free. And if you ask anything or you require anything or you lay anything to the charge of God's elect, you bring up Christ again from the dead. You bring Him back down from heaven. He is seated up there, finished. 
But what saith it? See, I thought we were supposed to get what the righteousness which is of faith saith. I thought that's what he said in verse 6. But he's had two negatives. The two negatives haven't said it positively. Now we get it positively. What saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. And I understand this the same way that Moses meant it in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 14. That they were talking about it, that they had resolved to keep it, that they fully understood it. But it's something different this time. It's not what they have to do to live. It's what's been already done for them that they should believe. And so we have the ninth verse tacked onto it. This is what it is. It's the word of faith which we preach. The Apostle Paul is saying, I and every other Apostle and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself have preached one message. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That was always the message of the New Testament. It's not do and live. It's live and believe. It's live and be baptized. It's live and obey. And it's just as obvious under the New Testament. It is in their hearts and their mouths. It was part and parcel of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That went forth. Jesus Christ was the Lamb. That Lamb has died once. Sins have been put away. Justification has been obtained. And for you to claim it, for you to under, for you to know that it is yours, believe the record that God has given of His Son Jesus Christ. Verse nine: That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, faith in the heart and confession of the mouth were what the apostles required and taught everywhere. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Second time I've said that, I'll probably say it again. In order to be baptized, you've got to make a confession with your mouth. What doth hinder me to be baptized? If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's what transpired between Philip, the evangelist, and the Ethiopian eunuch. That is a confession of a mouth resulting in baptism. They all go together because none of them change our status in heaven. All of them are the evidences of justification and righteousness secured by Jesus Christ Himself and alone. The second Adam standing as our representative the representative of the elect before God. Those things are how we claim it. Those things are how we assure our hearts before Him that we are His. And I don't want to deal more with that. I want to rejoice in the freedom of the gospel. I have spent so much time in the last one year preaching to you sermons about the role of faith in salvation. I have preached about questions for Arminians. I shouldn't have to spend another breath because it's all been declared, and I hope it's all understood, because I don't want to undo the glory of this message by having to deal negatively with what Arminians have done to corrupt verses like this. I've already done it thoroughly, very thoroughly. This is so wonderful. Can you imagine? You've got to place yourself in the shoes of the Israelites just for a minute that are back in verses 2 and 3 that have a zeal of God, but they are trying to establish their own righteousness by keeping the law of Moses to stand before God. And Paul gets to come along and tell them, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Forget that law. Jesus kept it perfectly from a positive standpoint, and Jesus died under the curse of it from a negative standpoint. You are justified. 
And the message is simply believe it like your father Abraham believed the promise that he was going to be the father of a multitudinous seed like the stars of heaven. And that belief that Abraham had was counted to him. That's an evidence that Abraham's a righteous man. And if you believe the record that God's given of his son, Jesus Christ, that is the evidence that you are a righteous man. Because no one else would ever do it. Believe it. Salvation has been completed. Christ came down from heaven. Christ went back up to heaven with his work finished. It's described in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 8 through 12 where it says, in that he ascended, because it quotes from Psalm 68 and verse 18. Don't make me turn there. It'll take too long. Psalm 68 and verse 18. It says, and when he ascended up on high, he gave gifts to men. And the apostle Paul reasons this way. If he ascended up on high, then what is it? He first had to descend into the lower parts of the earth. And now the gospel is simply to perfect saints, not to make saints. That's all in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 8 through 10. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, it's taught here by the act of faith how a sinner can evidence the righteousness of God that Jesus Christ secured for him just like Abraham did. We jump over the law. We go back to Abraham. Paul wants us to go back to Abraham. Paul doesn't want us to go to the law. The law was never designed to save anyone. The law was designed to drive us to Christ. But Abraham shows us the best example of justification by his simple faith, his simple belief in God's promise to him one night. And that's all we have to do for the evidence that we're righteous, for the claim that what Christ did is mine. When we do it, we're not elect. When we do it, we're not justified in God's sight legally. When we do it, we're not regenerated. But when we do it, we understand there is nothing I have to do. So all the claims of Moses' law are done away. All the claims of the seven sacraments of Rome are done away. Christ has finished it. No one can hold you in bondage when you believe that Jesus Christ did it all. And they want to hold you in bondage. You know, baptism itself, as I've mentioned, requires a confession in order to be baptized. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, I showed you last Lord's Day, that if you can confess that Jesus is Lord, what does it prove? You have the Holy Spirit of God in you, or you couldn't say that. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3. Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into heaven, but those that do the will of my Father which is in heaven. Jesus taught you in Matthew chapter 7, if you read it last evening. And thou shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Faith in the heart is what the apostles required and taught everywhere. It's more than just mental assent to the truth. As I showed you last Lord's Day, there were many that believed. They believed in his miracles. They believed on his name. They believed. But they didn't bring forth any fruit. They did not bring forth any works. And so Jesus mocked their faith. Jesus turned from them because he knew what was in all those men. It is not that difficult. It is not a fine line. And if you're wondering about your assurance of being saved by the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ, then look for the series No Fine Line on our website. Read the outline. Get the sermons one way or another if you need them. Look at Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. I love this expression about the faith of God's elect. This faith is more than just mental assent. This faith is more than just repeating after someone some little sinner's prayer. Can you believe that they tell people that they're saved even though those people couldn't come up with their own words? They make them quote, Say after me, Dear Jesus, 
I'm a sinner. Well, why weren't you already saying that? I find in the Word of God that people find it pretty easy when they're under the conviction of the Holy Ghost to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Galatians chapter 5. Oh, let's, let me get verse 1 and just read you this passage. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. You are not under the bondage of the law when you believe the gospel. You are delivered from Romans 10.5 into the glory of Romans 10.6-9 when you believe the gospel. Stand fast. Don't go back. Do you know how much Paul had to preach? Don't go back to Moses' law. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. That's his kind words for the law of Moses. Behold, listen to me, brethren. I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, if you get circumcised just because it was good under Moses' law, Christ shall profit you nothing. If you get circumcised thinking that that pleases God legally, you are messed up. Christ shall profit you nothing. That is in your theology. If they were God's elect, Christ profited them as much as He had ever profited them, but this is in their understanding. If you think that circumcision helps you get justified, then Christ has no profit because you do not mix Christ and circumcision. It is all Christ. Hold on, it's going to get better. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Just because you've kept one, what about the other 917? Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. That is the proper understanding of grace. You cannot lose your salvation when Jesus Christ dies for you. It is absolutely impossible whether you go to John chapter 10 and no man can pluck you out of his hand or his father's hand or you go to Romans chapter 8 and it says, Who shall anything to the charge of God's elect? And that five-length chain of salvation there ends up in glorification. And nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But you can fall from the right understanding of grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. We believe what God has promised, the promise of everlasting righteousness, and we wait for that hope. Verse 6, and here's what I was working toward. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision. God doesn't care if you're circumcised or not circumcised when it comes to your standing before Him, but faith which worketh by love. Faith that does works, not out of bondage like the law of Moses, but out of love for Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us. I just love that little expression. That's how we want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Back to Romans chapter 10. Without Paul's Jewish legalists in view, the apostle would teach works as much as James would. But when he's in Romans 10, and when he's dealing with Jewish legalists, he leaves good works off and just deals with faith. Faith is the initial act of a human heart and a human mouth believing and confessing the record that God's given of His Son, Jesus Christ. And then we follow up with good works, the first of which should be baptism. Thou shalt be saved. We understand this salvation to be the salvation introduced to us in the first verse. And that is salvation from ignorance to understanding how I stand before God. You'll be saved from thinking that Moses' law is going to save you. Because Christ is the end of the law for everyone that 
believeth. It turns on verse 4. Verse 4 is very key. That what Paul is going after is in the conscience of the believer. Not in their standing before God in heaven, but in the conscience of the believer. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Christ has always been the end of the law to God for righteousness. But this is the believer's conscience. And so salvation comes by believing on Christ and knowing that Jesus Christ justified me and I don't need to keep the law of Moses. And furthermore, by its position here, when you believe and you confess with your mouth and you're baptized, there's a day coming in which you shall be saved. Because it's put here in the future tense. When we stand before God, we shall be declared righteous by the evidence that we had faith and we made a confession and we were baptized, and we brought forth good works in our lives, it shows us to be God's elect. That is how we make our calling and our election sure for ourselves. We don't make it sure in heaven. It's already sure. The apostle would write, and I say again, who shall anything the charge of God's elect when Christ finished his work? But we want to make sure of it. So that John would write in 1 John 3, in about verse 13, We can assure our hearts before Him. We want to get our hearts assured. He's already sure. I'll lose none of them. Jesus told the Father. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You are standing in the righteousness of God that was secured by the Lord Jesus Christ, and in that great day it will be declared formally and officially before the universe. Because you have shown the evidence of it, just like Abraham showed the evidence of it. And just like Abraham did not change in his status before God in Genesis 15, 6, neither do we change in our status before God when we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart. That shows the work of God, that shows the righteousness of God already upon us because those are evidences. And they're bare evidences because that's all the apostle is going to bring up in a passage like this. In other places, he's going to tell us to work out our salvation, work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which hath worked in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Let me say again a point. Moses' law, do and live. The gospel, God worked in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. What a difference. And so it is faith that worketh by love. Why do we want to bring forth good works? Because we're counting all seven or nine hundred of them. I've used both numbers this morning. I'm going to have to go back and figure out which one it was. All I know is it's one thousand too many. If you know what I mean. It's one thousand too many. Our first father was the most competent man that has ever stood on this planet. And God gave him a commandment simpler than anything that can be found between Exodus and Deuteronomy. Don't eat the fruit of that tree. You can eat the fruit of every other tree. Just don't eat the fruit of that tree. And he couldn't do it. So it doesn't matter how many there are. We're doomed. We're damned. We're condemned without the Lord Jesus Christ. But we have him. And how do we know we have him? That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart, you have him. He died for you. And you can know that. And you can rest in the gospel rest of finished works. One more time, I want to take you back to John 5, 24. 
John chapter 5 and verse 24. You know, if people would stop painting posters about John 3.16, they might find out that 524 is in the Bible. Amen. But if you can only read through the middle of the third chapter and you get down with your get your paint out and start making posters and placards, then you're gonna miss John 5.24, you're gonna miss John 6, 37 through 39, you're gonna miss John 8. 30 through 44. You're going to miss John 10, 26 through 29. You're going to miss John 17, 2 and 3. John 5, 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, this is an important truth that we want to get from the Lord Jesus Christ. He that heareth my word, that's a present tense hearing, and believeth on him that sent me, that's a present tense believing, hath, that is in possession at the present time, everlasting life, and shall not, future tense, come into condemnation, but is past, that's a perfect tense, of an action completed in the past that is still true in the present, from death unto life. When a person believes the gospel, we're supposed to see more than one phase. So when I tell you in Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And I say, there's two salvations there that you get by believing. One, you get conversion from false doctrine and from misunderstanding how you are made righteous. Two, you'll be saved in the great day of judgment because you are showing the evidence of one of God's elect. And you say, where is that kind of stuff in the Bible where you get more than one phase in one verse? That's why I'm showing you John 5, 24. And I would suggest that you remember it from time to time. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me. Is this the first half of Romans 10, 9? Half everlasting life. He is in possession of everlasting life when he says that God dwells in him and he dwells in God. First John 4, 15. We'll go to it next. Half everlasting life and shall not. See, that's future tense. Shall not come into condemnation in the great day of judgment, but is past. They're already born again because is past is a perfect present, perfect present tense, meaning it's an action perfected. That's why it's called the perfect tense. In the past, still true in the present. Is past. He was passed from death into life in order to believe and to hear with understanding. Okay, 1 John 4.15. I just want to show you some of these different expressions that the Bible uses to keep the order of salvation right and for us to keep it right in our minds. But what a glorious doctrine of salvation that the apostle got to preach. Amen. 1 John 4, 15. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. Now see, in John 5, 24, the hearing and the believing was present tense. Therefore, we had a perfect tense and so forth. Notice here, the confessing, because we're trying to explain Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, something is already true before you confess. Whosoever shall confess future tense, that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in Him, present tense, and He in God, present tense. We're dealing with God's elect back in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Back to Romans 10. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. Faith begins in the heart, for it's the seat of affections, which chooses which facts and opinions it will believe. The greatest problem that we have when we think about total depravity is our heart's rebellion against God. It is not our mind's intellectual handicap. It's not that we are not 
competent mentally to believe the facts about the existence of God. It's because our heart hates Him. It is the heart that is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It rebels against God. So in verse 10, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. When a man believes the record of Jesus Christ, that God raised him from the dead, that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, that he is the only Savior from sin, from the heart, that is the evidence that he is a righteous man because no one else would ever believe that. The heart is too wicked and the heart hates the things of God until it is changed and given a new heart by the grace of God. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. If a man believes the gospel record that God gave of Jesus, he shows God's prior work in his heart. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. Just like Abraham believed and it was counted unto him for righteousness. It is the evidence. It is the claim. From Abraham's standpoint, it's the claim. From Abraham's standpoint and from our standpoint, looking at Abraham, it's the evidence. It's the proof that Abraham was a righteous man. Not that something changed about Abraham, but that it showed him to be righteous. Like Phinehas. When Phinehas went into that tent and used his javelin to take out two fornicators, and it says it was counted unto him for righteousness forever, his status before God didn't change in the least whit. But our knowledge of Phinehas sure changed because it was written of him in the Holy Scriptures that it was counted to him for righteousness. He was a righteous man, and that was a righteous act on his part showing that he was a righteous man. When we believe in our heart, which is at enmity against God prior to regeneration, it shows that we are righteous. And we believe unto righteousness, unto the evidence of it, as Paul has taught throughout this epistle to the present time. The legal righteousness obtained for us was by the second Adam and him alone. It's by the obedience of one that many shall be made righteous. We don't believe in order to be made righteous. We believe in order to show that righteousness already upon us and already over us in our standing before God. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. He that will confess me before men, I'll confess before my Father in heaven. He that will deny me before men, I'll deny before my Father in heaven. The confession of your mouth is a wonderful additional evidence of your righteousness and your salvation beyond bare belief. Because see, the devils believe and tremble. So how do we know if your belief is better than the devil's belief? Well, does it result in a confession? And that confession results in a baptism. To be baptized by an apostle for these Israelites was quite a statement because you're probably going to lose your job, lose your house, lose your assets, and lose your place in the temple and be severely persecuted. To do it during the Dark Ages, to be baptized by immersion, was to lose everything at the hands of the Roman Catholic Church. Baptists have been persecuted for 2,000 years. And so the confession that comes along that results in baptism shows the belief in the heart coming into reality. Anyone can say, I believe, but show us your belief, faith, which worketh by love, and show us the right motive for your works. Don't just show us some works done in the flesh, because that still isn't the evidence of eternal life. It's faith, which worketh by love. Yes, it's one of my new favorite verses, if you can't tell. Because Galatians 5, 1-6 through 6 addresses this passage so wonderfully, and I just read it to you. Verse 11, For the Scripture saith, Now if you are Paul, and you are writing about Jews, 
What had you better appeal to when you make your point that Moses' law is not how you get justified before God? Let me repeat all that. If you're Paul and you're preaching to Jews or Israelites and you say that keeping Moses' law is not how you get justified before God, what had you better prove that from? A systematic theology? From a seminary? From the Scriptures. Do you remember in Romans 9 that there was, they are not all Israel which are of Israel, and there were vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor, even us whom he hath called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles? Do you remember in Romans 9 that statement by Paul that just because you are a physical descendant of Abraham does not mean you are saved, does not mean you are a child of God, Paul quoted four places in Romans 9, 25 through 29. In five verses, he quoted four passages, and we milked them at length when we were back in Romans chapter 9, because if you're Paul preaching to Jews, you better prove your doctrine when you're picking on the Jews from the Bible. And when you're picking on Moses and saying, that's not the way you get the righteousness of God, you better be able to prove it from the Bible. For the Scripture saith... Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. That's Isaiah 28 and verse 16. Paul's already quoted it in Romans 9, 33, just a few verses ago. Peter quotes it in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6. Oh Lord, thank you. Watch the apostle at work. The apostle has Jews reading him and Jews listening to him. And he's telling them that righteousness is not by Moses' law. It's by believing on Jesus Christ of Nazareth that God raised him from the dead. If you believe that, you are righteous. And it's the end of the law. Do you know what those words would do to a Jew? The end of the law? So you better be able to prove it. He does. Isaiah 28 and verse 16. For the scripture saith, your scriptures in Isaiah 28 and verse 16 say, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Oh, that's wonderful. Do you know what a Jew would be thinking? Please imagine your whole life, the life of your father and the life of your grandfather, all the way back to Moses and the 12 tribes of Israel, believed that your standing before God was dependent upon keeping Moses' law. For you to leave Moses' law in your conscience and in your practice, you would be afraid that you might get before God and be ashamed. Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Do you believe this morning? Does everyone in this room believe on the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth? That he is the Son of God. That he is the Lord of heaven. That the God the Father raised him from the dead. That he sits at God's right hand. That he's coming again. That he's the only Savior. And there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. That is the evidence. Do you believe this morning? Don't anyone walk out of this room without believing. If you walk out of this room without believing and loving Him and and that faith working by love in your life, wait till you stand before Him in the shame that's going to come over you. Lord, have mercy upon us. The Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on Him shall not be ashamed. This verse is used so many times. Listen to the words. We compare Scripture with Scripture to get the full sense of words. In Isaiah 28, 16, shall not make haste. In 9, 33, shall not be ashamed. Here, not be ashamed. 
1 Peter 2.6, not be confounded. To make haste. Whenever you start acting really fast, it's because you're frantically fearful. Whoso believeth on him shall not make haste. There's going to be no fear or frantic actions or worries in that great day if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not going to be ashamed. You're not going to find out, I don't know who you are. Do you know how shameful that's going to be? I never knew you. Do you know how shameful that will be? But whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Do you know what it's like to be confounded? That is to be totally confused. Lord, Lord, I believed on you. I did many good works in your name. I never knew you. That is confusion. You say, well, how do I avoid being confused? Walk outside with me and look at the stars and believe. You see, but you just said, Lord, I believed. Why are you rejecting me? Come on. You don't know the difference? There's lots of people that say they believe. Mm-hmm. Right. There's lots of people that sing in church, Jesus, I my cross have taken. There's lots of people that stand in church and sing, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Doesn't mean a thing to God or men. Show us. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Mm-hmm. Make your calling and election sure. Let your faith work by love. Then it's real faith. Remember, Abraham wasn't justified until Genesis 22. You say, well, why doesn't Paul bring that up here? Because he's dealing with Jewish legalists and he doesn't need to bring up works right now. He'll bring them up elsewhere. Do you understand why he doesn't bring them up right here? They'll be confused. Where does it say in the Bible that Abraham wasn't justified until Genesis chapter 22, verse 12? Where does it say that? James chapter 2, verses 23 through 26. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Listen, the only reason that you would be feeling ashamed right now, or the fear of being ashamed, though you are a believer, though you are baptized, is because your life has not been lived out the way that it should be. You're the living dead that I'm going to preach about in the next service. And do you know why I'm combining these two together? For you to have the full assurance of your faith. Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead. Come into the house of God like Jerry told us from Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise in the Lord. Serve Him with gladness. Bring thanksgiving in. Bless His holy name. And you'll know you're one of God's elect. No one does that. The mumblers don't have any evidence of eternal life. It's the shouters. You say, well, it's in my heart. Not according to Romans 10. It's not good enough. It's got to be confessed with your mouth. And Psalm 100 tells us how to confess it with our mouth. Do you know what the Scriptures call us to? See, here's what people accuse us of. If I were to believe your doctrine, it doesn't matter how I live, because if I'm elect, I'm going to go to heaven. And if I'm not elect, I'm not going to go to heaven. But do you know what I'm preaching to you right now? That it's all of grace. But without the evidence in your life, you can't make any claim to it. We have the best of both worlds because it's the truth. And the truth of God endureth to all generations. Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. You want to listen to this verse from Isaiah 45 and verse 17. And if you've got your iPhone Bibles cranking, you can turn to Isaiah 45, 17. 
it sounds like this. But Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded world without end. Do you like that one? Let me say it again. But Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded world without end. Can you imagine being a Roman Catholic? And all your life, and all your daddy's life, and all your granddaddy's life, they believe the seven sacraments of Rome is what saved you. And all of a sudden, you've heard the gospel. And you're afraid. Because as soon as I get baptized, and my family finds out about it, they're going to tell the priest, I'm going to be thrown out of the church. There's going to be anathemas pronounced against me, curses. I'm going to be excommunicated. I will not be able to take the Mass ever again. Do you understand? There would be fear of getting before God and having Mary and Jesus reject you because you left Mother Church. Because outside the Church of Rome, there is no salvation. So what does the Word of God have to say to you? Whosoever believeth on Him shall not be ashamed. Are you willing to cast yourself upon Christ today? Run to Him and cast yourself upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him. There is no difference. Oh, thank you, Lord. He's dealing with Israel here because He told us in the first verse, these three chapters are about Israel, but He sticks in here that there's no difference between the Gentiles and the Jews. They've always been saved the same way by the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. There is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, and it makes me sick that dispensationalists and others today want to make a difference between the Jew and the Gentile. There is no difference. There won't be any difference. That middle wall of partition has been broken down between the two categories. They've been made one body by the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. This was fabulous news to the Gentiles sitting in the church in Rome, possibly in the back rows. (laughs) Because remember, many of them were converted out of the synagogues where the Jews, that was their church, and they were called religious proselytes if you were a Gentile, meaning you're kind of strangers. But, you know, we'll let you in since you went to our doctor and had a little bit of minor surgery done. We'll let you in, but, you know, you're still, we'll call you proselytes. It'd be so wonderful to have a verse like this stuck right in the middle of a discussion about Israel. There is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. How'd Rahab get saved? Well, if you trust James too, she got saved by lying to the magistrates. Right. Is that what saved her? Or is that what showed she was saved? That's one of James's examples of how we're justified by works. Was not Rahab our, Rahab the harlot justified by works? How was Ruth saved from that wicked, whoremongering nation of Moab? By the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord, like everyone else is saved. Do you know what Peter would testify? In the great council of Jerusalem with all the apostles and elders, Sitting there, what do the converted Gentiles need to keep from Moses' law? How are they going to be saved? Peter said, We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Now, hold on. 
It's sweet. This is, this is the first pope. I speak as a fool for a moment just to get your attention. Peter said, We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Who did he put first? The Gentiles. By the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter said, we Jews hope to be saved just like the Gentiles are saved. (laughs) Praise His name. This is the greatest church council in the history of the world. The only church council in the Bible. The only church council in history that we care about. What a wonderful declaration. How did a castrated black Ethiopian get to heaven? By the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know? Because he believed with all his heart and he was baptized by the confession of his mouth in an oasis in the middle of the desert. And the Bible says in Psalm 68, Ethiopia is going to lift up her hands to God. Ethiopia is going to cry out for God. And that the dry trees should not consider themselves unworthy of being in the kingdom of heaven. Three different Old Testament passages about our black brother in Acts chapter 8. Praise the Lord. What about Cornelius, our Italian brother? How was he accepted by God? Through Jesus Christ before he met Peter. Peter said, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Thank you, Lord. There's no difference between the Jew and the Greek. The same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. It's called the riches of his grace in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, referring to our election. It's called the riches of His grace, referring to our regeneration in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. If you want two great cross-references for His riches that come before believing, it is Ephesians 1, 7 and 2, 4. Verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you know what? This is another quotation. This is Joel 2, 32. This is Paul proving the point that it was taught in the Old Testament Scriptures. This is what Peter used on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. This right here, this verse. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I want you to notice that when the Bible uses the word whosoever, it's in verse 11 and it's in verse 13, and in the middle tells us what the word whosoever means. The same thing it means in John 3.14 and John 3.16. Same thing. Whosoever, Jew or Gentile, broadening it out beyond anything the Jews had ever imagined. That's why Paul in verse 12 brings up something that he really didn't need to bring up right here because it's not germane to his argument. But if he's going to quote those scriptures that use whosoever, for there is four explaining why the whosoever shall be saved, for there's no difference between the Jew and the Greek. That's why the word whosoever. Broadening it out far wider than the Jews could ever imagine that God was going to save Gentiles without the law of Moses and without circumcision. That was that was a big That was not small pill evangelism. That was huge pill evangelism. But that is why Paul would quote from the Scriptures repeatedly to make his point. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. When do you call upon the name of the Lord? I hope you call upon the name of the Lord when you were baptized. I won't baptize anyone that doesn't call upon the name of the Lord. Look at what Ananias said to the Saul of Tarsus. And now why tarriest thou? Acts 22, verse 16. Saul, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So when and how do we call upon the name of the Lord? When we're baptized. 
We call on the name of the Lord. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. And I want to be baptized in a picture of His death, burial, and His resurrection. And that's calling upon the name of the Lord. And I call upon the name of the Lord when I baptize anyone. With the authority given to me by the Lord Jesus Christ, I baptize thee. Because it's calling upon the name of the Lord. And so we set ourselves apart from this world to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And anyone that does that shall be saved from the false understanding and confusion of being justified by Moses' law, the seven sacraments of Rome, or any other doctrine. And they'll be saved in the great day of judgment because that is the evidence of everlasting life and everlasting righteousness secured by Jesus Christ. When we think about a person believing, there's three phases of salvation that come before Election, justification, and regeneration. And there's two phases of salvation that come afterward. Conversion and glorification. And we stick it right in there. When the Philippian jailer said to Paul, what must I do to be saved? He wasn't thinking about election. He didn't know anything about it. He wasn't thinking about justification. He didn't know much about it, if anything at all. He wasn't thinking about regeneration. He was wanting to be saved from the hopelessness of the religion of his fathers and of his nation and to know that when he stood before the Creator God that had just shaken his prison into wreckage and it had men within it that were singing in the middle of the night, he wanted to stand before God like them. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And if you follow on in the next number of verses, you find him at home believing in God with all his house. Amen. His whole house believed. So the whole house was saved from a false understanding of the doctrine of God to a true understanding of justification before Him because Paul had to go home and teach to him the things of God. He didn't even know anything about Jesus Christ unless he had been a listener in the streets when the apostle had been defending himself against the charges brought by the magistrates of Philippi. Remember, faith falls in the middle of election, justification, and regeneration. It's, it's after them but it's before conversion and glorification. And so then we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Faith, which, which worketh by love, is what counts. God doesn't care whether you're circumcised or you're uncircumcised. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Don't ever let an Arminian get away with saying, it's just the belief part. See, Arminian Baptists can't handle verse 16. Because it says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And see, it says you've got to be calling upon the name of the Lord. And we look, we look up calling upon the name of the Lord, and it happens with baptism, according to Acts 22 and verse 6. And Galatians chapter 3 would tell us that as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You haven't put on Christ until you've been baptized, because it's only been in your heart. You put on Christ when you go down in that water with a burial and a resurrection like He did for you and you declare to the world, I am that man's. And let me tell you, in the past, that cost you dearly. And it's almost, I didn't say it was, but it's almost a shame that it doesn't cost us now because it would be more meaningful when someone was baptized. There's the gospel of grace. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Have you called upon Him? Are you willing to confess Him right now that He is Lord and He is the head of this universe and He's coming again and He's your only hope of everlasting life and that it's by His single work of redemption the cross of Calvary that saves you? Have you been baptized? Are you bringing forth works by love? Is love filling your life so that it results in works? And are you working out your own salvation with fear and trembling and giving all diligence to make your calling and election sure? You'll never be confounded. You'll never be ashamed. 
You'll never make haste. You're never going to get frantic in that great day. You're going to be ushered into the presence of God. This is no fine line. If it sounds like a fine line to you, you're too much in the flesh. Get out of it. Run farther away from the line. That's what it means to give all diligence to make your calling and election sure. That's what it means with fear and trembling to work out your own salvation. Run away from any fine line that you think is there in your life. Oh, we have a wonderful doctrine of salvation. It's all of grace, and yet the evidence requires our diligence to make it sure to our own hearts. And we, but we can assure our hearts before Him. What a glorious message of free salvation. And our brother Paul got to preach it to Israel. Amen. And then to the Gentiles. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen. Amen. Amen.